Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, January 1st, 2022. Right now, we are still in last year, and it is Wednesday morning, as we have our friend Truthvids here with us once again to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 66 of this series. We are only up to proof number 83. As it may have become evident throughout recent portions of this series of our 100 proofs, proving that the Israelites were white goes far beyond examining Old Testament verses which describe or allude to the color of their skin. Rather, if the apostles of Christ had brought the gospel to the white nations of Europe, exclusively to the white nations of Europe, and if time and again we can demonstrate that they themselves had believed that they were bringing the gospel to the people who were descended from those Israelites who were scattered abroad in ancient times, then each aspect of that belief, as the apostles themselves had expressed it, is also a sure proof of our assertions. So last week we described what is a church. And this week, we shall discuss a related subject, which is, what is a saint? Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Truthfids, thank you for being here. Hello, Bill. Thanks for having me, as always. Uh, yes, yeah, so we're on to what is a saint, and uh, th- this is an important one because there is a holy race, a holy seed, who are all the saints of, of Yahweh, right? And um, we essentially, the European race, are that holy seed, and we shouldn't, you know, in the, in the modern world, um, we're, we're thought not not to think that way that we're all equal, but we're not. We, we are clearly uh, set apart from all the other races, and even amongst the other Adamic nations, although we are fellow Adamites, we would be the special holy seed, right? That's how the ancient Israelites fought, and we shoot for you know in their mind and we should think the same way right and um the as we said before the whole idea that the pope can create saints or that people who devote themselves to the church or do good things for the church that they're elevated to sainthood or that the catholic church can um rewrite history and and claim some pious man was actually secretly a catholic and he's one of their saints right it's it's all nonsense really but um perhaps even more important is is the fact that the whole european race was saved no matter what that we're the saints and that perhaps you could split us into three three categories right the the good saints and the bad saints people who obey Yahweh and people who don't and um, they're all saved no matter what and one day we will all be judged by Yahweh but then there's these other races who have no redemption right and that's how all white people should think and um, look at our own race and the other races right Bill? Well absolutely because the the goats in the parable of the sheep and the goats the shepherd divides the flock by their race, by their kind or type. And all of the sheep, without exception, 
go into the kingdom of heaven, and all of the goats, without exception, go into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The sheep all go into the kingdom of God, whether or not they were good sheep or bad sheep. And a sheep being bad or doing something wicked doesn't make it a goat. You can't be a sheep one day, a goat the next, and, and no, that's not what Christ is saying at all. And so many other statements in the prophets and the apostles confirm that interpretation of the parable of the sheep and the goats. And so many of the other words of Christ, that God has his creation and that there is a corruption of his creation. And you're of either one party or the other. You can't help what you are. God is going to prevail. His word and his law will prevail. And when men imagine that God would abrogate or violate his own law, then that is the height of arrogance and blasphemy to accuse God of violating his own law. It, it's, I, I can't describe how arrogant that is. That, that, that's humanism and the desire of man to form God in his own image, which is the basis for idolatry. And that's what the churches do. They ignore the law. They say, oh, Jesus did away with that. And that's certainly not true. And Christ himself, his own words, deny that and say just precisely the opposite of that. So that that's the arrogance and blasphemy of the organization or organizations or instruments that call themselves churches today. And they're not the church at all. They're synagogues. They're not churches, as I hope to have adequately explained in our last presentation. So now we move on to what is a saint? Your illustration using the words holy seed is absolutely descriptive. Even though I chose to leave that passage out of my preparation for this presentation today, Ezra chapter 9 verse 2. And the holy seed is also discussed in Daniel chapter 7, but that exact phrase is not employed. In Ezra chapter 9 verse 2, he makes a statement that in mixed race marriages, the holy seed have mingled themselves. And even though the people of Judah, Levi and Benjamin, who returned in 520 BC to rebuild the temple, and to reestablish Jerusalem were the holy seed. They were only a small portion of the holy seed. And it is our contention that we could prove, as we have throughout all of these five dozen proofs or so proofs that we presented so far, that the holy seed are the people who ultimately migrated west into Europe and had established the modern nations of Europe. Even though there were 
other related people in Europe at an earlier time. And many Europeans may in part be descended from them. For the most part, modern Europeans, white Europeans, have descended from this holy seed. And the scripture proves that, as we've been reiterating here for the last 65 proofs. Or, or I'm sorry, for the last 65 presentations here. This is for the last 82 proofs. I don't know if you have a comment before I begin. Yeah, and it also just explains what's what's going on. Why the Jews want to race mix us out of existence, right? Because they're the bastard race. And, uh, you know, knowing that there's a holy race, uh, that they want us rid of us, right? They want to mix us out of existence. And if you're, you know, you're, you're aware and you know what's going on in the world, then, then it all suddenly starts to click and it makes sense and you know why they're doing this, right? Well, that's Revelation chapter 12. After the Christ child is caught up into heaven and the woman is in the wilderness being nourished with the gospel of Christ, the dragon, which is represented by Jewry, by the Edomite Jews, in scripture, as we see earlier in Revelation chapter 12, that Herod the Great, who was demonstrably an Edomite Jew, sought to destroy the Christ child, that the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So who is the seed of the woman if not the white European people to whom the apostles of Christ had brought the testimony of Christ. And that in itself is a proof of, of all of our assertions. In the Old Testament, one Hebrew word, which is typically translated as saint, is Kadesh or Kadash, sometimes as in Strong's, it's transliterated as Kodesh. And that's because the Masoretic rabbis had inserted different vowel points on their own. Long after the time of Christ, they inserted different vowel points into the Hebrew text. And it wasn't all for wicked purposes that they did that. They simply wanted to identify words according to their parts of speech or how they were used. If they were used as a, as a common noun or as a proper name, for example. Because even the word Adam can be a common noun, meaning a certain particular race of man, or it could be a proper name, right? as it is in the case of Adam and in the case of Edom. So they used different vowel points to represent Edom than they did Adam, but in the original Hebrew, the words are spelled exactly the same, with the same couple of letters. And there were no vowel points in ancient Hebrew. It was up to the reader to determine how the word was being employed. So, Kadesh, Kodesh, Kadash, they're really all the same word, except that there are two different spellings. That there's the Kaf Daleth Chef spelling, or, or QD 
S and and then there's the Q D U S or or Q D Vab S which is more like Kadish it's spelled. And and Strong's did his best in his own transliterations to di- to distinguish between these, but they're actually they're actually all the same word. And I think I called the S character a chef when it's a shin or something like that. I I, I don't. It's a shin. I'm sorry. It it's um. I remember the characters and the sounds they make more than I remember the Jewish names for them. Sorry. So this word, which is typically translated as saint, being kadesh or kadash. Or, or some other variation, it refers to someone or something which has been sanctified or separated for a particular reason. Sometimes, unfortunately, another word was also translated as saint, which is chased, or perhaps it should be pronounced chakid. But that word, I think it's chased. The C is soft in this sense. But that word really only describes someone who is merely faithful or pious. So in the King James Version of the New Testament, the word translated as saint is always from the Greek word hagios which Liddell and Scott define primarily as devoted to the gods. Although in the Bible we would say God, or properly Yahweh. So something that's hagios in the Bible is hagios to the God of the Bible. But after that definition, even Liddell and Scott go on to provide the typical church definitions of the word, sacred or holy, without explaining those definitions in relation to the primary definition any further, which they should have, because something uh, sacred is what God deems sacred, is what has been devoted to God. I was just going to say it's um, the Jews have tried to cling to Hebrew, and um, you, you can see that the language definitely needed you know, improvements, it was the, uh, you know, from that they created this alphabet, um, you know, in Egyptian slavery, and we kept evolving and improving in it, right, with Greek and then Latin and then Germanic languages. We just made new languages altogether, but the Jews tried to cling with this and then add those little vowel points to improve it a little bit rather than just making a new language like we did, right, because they're trying to pretend to be um, the Israelites, so they need to cling to the uh, ancient Hebrew, right? Whereas we, we don't have that limitation. Well, well, right, that's absolutely true, even though Yahweh God had told the children of Israel in the words of the prophet Isaiah that With stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. That's Isaiah chapter 28 verse 11. And we will probably bring that passage up again 
later in these 100 proofs, when we speak about the New Testament being written in the Greek language. And that's an indication right there that he won't speak to the children of Israel in Hebrew. He's speaking about the children of Israel who are going to be taken into captivity. And then he's informing them that he will speak to them and teach them precept upon precept, line upon line. That's Isaiah chapter 28, verse 10, that they will learn knowledge and doctrine, precept upon precept and line upon line, in another language, not in Hebrew. But these Edomite Jews who clung to their assumption, their second century B.C. assumption of our identity or of the identity of the children of Israel, an identity that they should not have, that they do not merit because they're not Israelites, when they converted to Judaism, they did cling to the language and to the the trappings or their own interpretation of the trappings of, of their identity and, and clothing and customs, but they really just made a mockery out of all those things. If you can, and, and we will see that later in these proofs also, that Hebrew culture was very, very much like the pagan Greek culture. And there were so many similarities that it was really just one culture being spoken in two different languages, except that the one people still had the truth about the God of the Bible, while the other people, as it's described in the Bible itself, had gone off into paganism. And, and began to worship idols and, and the, the figments of, of um, the imaginations of men in relation to these ancient heroes or giants, these notable men in the earth who were actually Nephilim, and, and the Greeks worshipped them and imagined themselves to have been descended from them even when it wasn't true. So that's another digression. There are other words which merely mean pious in Greek, as we've already mentioned, chasid in Hebrew simply means pious, and sometimes that's translated as holy. Well, one of those words is hosios, a Greek word which, unfortunately, was also translated as holy. For example, in the King James Version, hosios is holy. Describing Christ in Acts chapters 2 and 13, and also of the holy things which were assured to David in Acts chapter 13, it's translated as holy in the phrase holy hands in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And it's translated as holy words used to describe people in Titus chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 7, and even in relation to God in Revelation chapters 15 and 16. So that word, hosios, which appears in the New Testament only on those eight occasions, 
except there's a couple of variations of it here and there. It's having been translated as holy actually helps to obscure the full meaning of the word hagios, which describes things that are holy because they are separated and devoted to God, whether those things are objects, land, or even people. In truth, what is sacred or holy is something which has been devoted to a God. And it becomes the property of that God. That's how these things were seen in the ancient world. That's how the Greeks consistently used that term hagios. They never used the term hagios to describe merely some good person. Somebody who was nice to everybody. Someone who did things for people. They only used, they had other words for that. They only used the word hagios to describe something that was devoted to a god, which is the property of that god. So the grounds of a temple would be called hagios because they were set apart for the use of the god of the temple. Anything sacrificed on the altar that God would become hagios because it was being devoted or dedicated to that God whereby the pagan would hope for some favor in return. So the Hebrew word for holy, kadash, means sacred or set apart. And that is what's described by the Greek word hagios as well. This word Kadash appears as saint in the King James Version on approximately 18 occasions, such as in Psalm 106, verse 16, or Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, and six times in Daniel chapter 7 alone where it speaks of the holy people. More often, the cognate word Kadesh appears as saints in Daniel. But in Daniel, it is supposedly an Aramaic form, or Kadesh. It, instead of being spelled with a Q-D and then a Shin, or a, a Vab and then a Shin, it's spelled with a Q-D-Yad shin. So it has that extra Yad in there. So they transliterate that as Kadish. Now, I'm not really sure if that was purposeful on Daniel's part. Because I know that sometimes in the Hebrew manuscripts, the Yad and the Vav are actually confused or mistaken for one another. All it takes is for a scribe to make a little too long a stroke as he's writing with these Hebrew letters, these block letters. The Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon primarily defines Kadesh or Kodesh as apartness, holiness, sacredness, or separateness. The Greek equivalent is hagios, 
as these words were translated throughout the Septuagint. And hagios more fully means set apart for the purposes of a god, even according to Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. Um, Bill, when, when the um, ba- you know the Israelites were in Babylon, the the Babylons then they were actually Chaldeans, right? Who came from uh, where, where Abraham was born, where they spoke, Ara- you know, the the language of Aram, right? So if they had some kind of influence because the Israelites were deported there when Daniel was there, it would be you know perfectly uh, innocent for them to have some kind of influence from that language, right? Whereas today we imagine. Aramaic is basically Arabic, right? And and that's basically a lie, right? Because the Arabs came much later. It would just mean another white civilization that had an influence on the Hebrew language at the time, right? Right. In very ancient times, and this is more or less demonstrable in ancient inscriptions, it is esteemed that the Chaldeans, who are actually Kassites or Casti, and the British anthropologists of the 19th century called them Chaldeans, after Chaldea, which became the name for the land of the southern end of Mesopotamia. Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees in perhaps the 19th or 20th centuries BC into the land of Canaan. So, these Chaldeans in times that were even earlier than that, because that was at one time the land of Sumer. And, of course, the Sumerian Empire had fallen. They came from the north of Syria, from the very land where Abraham was from, the very same land. So, they're often esteemed to have been Syrians. Of course, there's argument over that, but we can actually, if we go into the ancient inscriptions, pretty much establish that they were kindred. If they weren't Syrians themselves, they were kindred to Abraham and the ancient people of Aram and Arphaxad, who are mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. So these Casti, or Chaldeans, if you will, had invaded Babylon and taken it for themselves at a very early time, even before the time of Abraham, or at least before the time of Moses, who had, in the 15th century BC, described that as the land of the counties. So they spoke a language which was very similar to Hebrew, but it had colloquial variations. And because it was esteemed that these people were Syrians, and because the language they spoke had been spread throughout Syria and Mesopotamia, the language was called Aramean by people of the Christian era. It was called Syriac in earlier centuries, and Aramaic or Aramean in more recent times. So this language that we know as Aramaic was actually the lingua franca of the 
Babylonian and the Persian empires. The Persians, it was so prevalent even in Persia and so close to Hebrew. And there were so many people of Judah and Israel who were still in those areas at that time that understood Aramaic. That's how close it must have been to Hebrew. That it, the Persians, when they conquered the Babylonian Empire and came into the empire of their own, they had left Aramaic intact as the lingua franca. When I say lingua franca, I mean the language of trade and diplomacy. If you read the ancient Greek authors, Herodotus it is an example. The Greeks understood the Assyrian language, and the Greeks could read Assyrian. Probably not many Greeks, but during the time of the Assyrian Empire, their language was the lingua franca, Akkadian. And Akkadian must have been, or seems to have been, seems to have had a lot in common with the language of the Sumerians before them. So, Akkadian was the language of trade and diplomacy, and therefore the Greeks, who were their neighbors to the West, had to be familiar with it if they wanted to deal with the Assyrians. And Greek writing can be that there are many aspects of early Greek writing and language that show that they were familiar with it. Herodotus did know what certain Assyrian inscriptions had said, and he quoted them, but he quoted them in Greek because he was writing in Greek. So this lingua franca, this concept of a lingua franca, is very important for trade and diplomacy in with every world empire. And that's why today... Most people of other nations and races have some understanding of English. Because ever since the dawn of the British Empire, English, in spite of what the French have tried to do, because they've tried to use their own language in that sense, or promote their own language for that sense, English has become the lingua franca of trade and diplomacy these last several hundred years. It was no different in the ancient world. So the Persians, and especially with all the Israelites of the captivity, and that includes the Parthians, had left Aramaic in place as the lingua franca. It's absolutely innocent, as you said, that there might be some Aramaic spellings of words found in Daniel and in later scriptures. A lot of modern scholars and academics and commentators attempt to claim that the apostles were speaking Aramaic when they weren't speaking Greek. That's not true. The apostles called it Hebrew. And you can't imagine that they didn't know what language they were speaking. So there's a lot more overlap and a perception that what we call Aramaic today was really Hebrew. There was a lot more overlap in the world of the apostles. They didn't think it was Syriac or Aramaic. They thought it was Hebrew. 
So it's our view of these things today that's skewered. And it's skewered because we look at the Bible and the ancient world through the lens of the Jews, through the lens that the Jew has crafted for us, rather than through the actual historical, proper historical perspective. Josephus, Flavius Josephus, had written in his Wars of the Judeans that he originally wrote the book in Aramaic, hoping to persuade the northern barbarians to join in the Judean revolts against the Romans. Now, Josephus was a Judean patriot. But he was a Levite. He wasn't what we call a Jew. And even though Judea had become a mixed-race province, there were still people who were Judean patriots, and Josephus was one of them. So he wrote this book, Wars of the Judeans, for the sake of persuading northern barbarians to join in the cause. And where he said northern barbarians, the rest of the text of the Book of the Wars informs us that he meant the Parthians, the Goths, the Alans, and other so-called Scythians who were actually descended from the ancient Israelites who he had expected to understand the Aramaic language. And they did. So that's a digression, but perhaps it's a necessary one. I don't know if you have a response before I proceed trying to describe what holy really means. Joseph Thayer. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you're a little late. Maybe I caught you doing something. I'm sorry. Joseph Thayer defines the verb hagiazo to mean to make hagion, render or declare sacred or holy. That's what it means to make something hagion or hagios, to consecrate. Hence, it denotes to render or acknowledge, to be venerable, to hollow, to separate from things profane and dedicate to God. That's how we should understand something which is venerable or hollow, in that it has been separated from things profane and dedicated to God. So where Thayer continues, he says, to consecrate and so render inviolable, to purify. And then he gives other definitions which are of lesser significance, but they're still related. You still can't separate them from these meanings, where he says to purify, to cleanse externally, to purify levitically. In the scripture, that's what it means by cleansing something externally. To purify by expiation, free from the guilt of sin. And Thayer gives examples. 
But we would contend that in the Bible, where it is used to describe people, neither the verb hagiazo or the noun hagias can be correctly interpreted apart from the fact that Yahweh himself had chosen the children of Israel to be his peculiar people. And he sanctified them alone, which is his explicit word. So, for example, where he says that hagianzo means to free from the guilt of sin. Thayer cited 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. There, Paul wrote, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Those who commit fornication and idolatry are race mixers, as fornication is the pursuit of different flesh. One sort of idolatry is to worship the gods of aliens, but another is to commit fornication with those aliens. Adulterers can be race mixers as well as marriage violators, and abusers of mankind is a reference to sodomites. It is not removal of the guilt of sin that sanctified these people whom Paul had addressed in that passage. Rather, it is the cessation of these sins and the act of repentance as having separated and having separated separated themselves from such sinners which sanctified these people once they recognized the forgiveness of Christ. So, That's so Phil, what I'm understanding this correctly, that they're blurring the lines with these translations, that if you do what Paul says, that they make it as though that makes you a holy person, as which... And then they take away the fact that we already are a holy people. And it sounds like there's good people and bad people. And only if you're um, a pious person will you be saved or if you believe rather than simply we're all saved, but we should strive to follow Christ. And, and these other people, we should be separated from them. You lose that complete context and meaning, right, with these mistranslations. Well, well, absolutely. Paul's telling them, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, because he's the one that sanctified and justified them. So for that reason, because they are sanctified and justified, they should depart from those practices and separate themselves from people who do them. Just as Paul had instructed them, in chapter 5 of the same epistle, 
just a few verses before these, Upon receiving a report of a fornicator among them, that I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world, the society. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. In other words, if you have a brother who does these things, he's a brother first, and he's doing these things. That doesn't make him not a brother. It He's still a brother. You can't change that. Because he's a member of your same race. He's still a brother, but you can't keep company with him because he's doing those things. Chapter 5 defines what Paul's saying in verse 6. Paul's words describe what Paul is saying. You're, you're sanctified in Christ. You're justified in Christ. And now you should act as if you are sanctified and justified and depart from all these sins. So Paul says, for what do I have to do to judge them also that are without? That means them that are outside. Do you not judge them that are within? In other words, we should judge one another who are within the assembly of God. But them that are without or outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Even if he's a brother, and he can only be inside if he is a brother, you have to, as long as he's a sinner, you have to put him outside. The assembly could not be holy unless they separated themselves from the wicked. Even if Christ had justified them, had justified and sanctified them. We're expected to act in accordance with that justification and that sanctification. The church puts the cart before the horse and tells us we can't be sanctified or justified unless we're good people and we act accord, and we act accordingly. No, we're already sanctified and justified and for that reason we should act accordingly if we are his people. The word hagios is saint. Only once in the King James Version, New Testament. But it is saints on 61 occasions. On the other occasions where hagios appears, it is holy. Where it appears in the singular, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul tells his readers to salute every saint in Christ Jesus. There it may be evident that there are saints who are not, or not yet, in Christ Jesus, as Paul had written those words. This we shall see, beginning with the Old Testament. Apart from the description of the consecration of the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2, the word sanctify, kodesh, right, or kadash, or kadesh, 
The word sanctify in its primary uses does not appear again until the phrase holy ground in Exodus chapter 3. And then in Exodus chapter 12 in reference to the Sabbath once again. Then in Exodus chapter 13 where it first describes the people in general. The status of being sanctified is expressed where we read, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. So right there we see what the word sanctify means, where it's used in relation to the God of the Bible, that something sanctified belongs to him. The word sanctify there is the same word, the verb kadash, which when it is used as a noun to describe people is often translated as saint. A saint is someone who is sanctified. We see another command from Moses to sanctify all the people in Exodus chapter 19. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day, Yahweh will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Then later, He was commanded to sanctify the same priests, a little later in a chapter, to sanctify the priests. And let the priests also, which come near to Yahweh, sanctify themselves, lest Yahweh break forth upon them. In other words, if they didn't sanctify themselves, he would punish them. Following that, Moses was even instructed to sanctify the land around Mount Sinai, And Moses said unto Yahweh, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds about the mount, and sanctify it. So just like the land, and just like the seventh day, when people are sanctified, they too have been set apart for God for a particular reason. When the land was sanctified, It was marked off so that nobody would walk upon it. Just like back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was told that the land was holy ground, he was told not to walk on it, to take his sandals off first, so that he wouldn't ceremonially soil it or consider it that it should be trodden upon by men. That's why the word profane in the New Testament, and this is a digression, I didn't include it in my notes. The word profane in the New Testament often comes from a Greek word, bebelos, which is actually a perfect form of an adjective. It comes from a perfect form of the verb or a past tense form of the verb. Bebelos means trodden upon and it means profane because something that's 
sanctified is inviolable and is expected to be maintained in a certain manner. And that includes people. Where something profane is something that can be walked all over, as we say in English, and used any way that men want to use it. So the paradigms, the concepts behind these words, hold up in Greek as well as they did in Hebrew. Moses was told why Israel was being sanctified earlier in that same chapter, Exodus chapter 19. And Moses went up unto God, and Yahweh called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. They shall be saints, they shall be sanctified. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. In the phrase holy nation, the word for holy is also Kadash, which is a separated, sanctified nation. This same passage was later cited by Peter in chapter 2 of his first epistle, where addressing the Christians of the provinces of Anatolia, he wrote, But you are a chosen generation, or race. The same word is better translated as race, and it was actually translated as race in several different versions of Scripture. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you would show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the verse which followed, he cited a passage from Hosea, which is relevant only to the scattered children of Israel. The word Peter used for holy is also hagios. So he was describing a people separated or set apart. Yeah, it's interesting that um, he says that he carried them on eagle wings, right, from the Egyptians out into the wilderness, and then they would go into the land of Canaan. And then if you read in Revelation, it's basically making a a similar comment that he brought the, uh, the woman out. That there's a bit where it's on eagle wings, right? That they and that's essentially into Europe. So it's the same thing, right? Brought brought them out and starting again. And and people don't make that connection that uh, this is like the the second chance in Europe away from the uh, accursed Canaanites, where we can start again, but this time with Christianity, right? Well, absolutely. That this is Yahweh God teaching the children of Israel a lesson by putting them off in punishment because they promised to be obedient. If you read the rest of Exodus chapters 19 and 20, 
They agreed with all of this law and promised to keep it and to be obedient to him. And of course, Yahweh sees everything and he sees the entire future. Otherwise, we wouldn't have prophets and and we wouldn't know that he was true if we didn't have prophets. And he knew they were going to fail the test, but he tested the children of Israel. And they promised obedience, and all they did was disobedience. Everything they did for the next 500 years was to show their disobedience and their failure to keep their promises. But another part of the lesson is that Yahweh God keeps his promises. So he put them off in punishment and promised to redeem them, not for their, not because they're good. They're not good. We've never been good. And even the scripture tells us in Romans chapters 6 and 7, in the Psalms of David, repeatedly that no flesh can be justified in his sight that every man sins it's our fleshly nature to sin so we can never take credit for earning as the catholic church wants you to earn being a saint no man can earn being a saint because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of god we rely on the grace and mercy of our God in order that we may live. So he promised to redeem them on that basis. And that's the redemption which is in Christ. And he's still dealing with them alone. As the New Testament states over and over again, but the church translations and the church doctrines have obscured the meanings of many passages and words, which we've already spoken about at length in our survey of mistranslations in the New Testament earlier in these 100 proofs. So there may be pious people. People described with the words chasid in Hebrew or hosios in Greek. But one does not have to be pious in order to be a saint. The children of Israel were certainly not sanctified because they were pious, as they were clearly stiff-necked sinners. Shortly after they were sanctified, Moses went up to Mount Sinai, and the children of Israel sinned with the golden calf. But in spite of that, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, they were still described as saints in the blessings of Moses upon Israel, where he spoke of Yahweh God, and we read, yeah, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand, and they sat down at thy feet. Everyone shall receive of thy words. Moses commanded us a law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. And this same thing we also read much later, like 500 years later, in a prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 from verse 50. And forgive thy people that have sinned against thee, and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee. 
and give them compassion before them who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they be thy people, and thine inheritance which thou broughtest forth out of Egypt, from the midst of the furnace of iron, that thine eyes may be open under the supplication of thy servant, and under the supplication of thy people Israel to hearken unto them in all that they call for unto thee. For thou did separate them from among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance, as thou spakest by the hand of Moses thy servant, when thou broughtest our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So we see in that prayer, that the children of Israel could sin and need forgiveness or be in need of forgiveness. But they were nevertheless the people of Yahweh and by him they were still considered separate from all other peoples even if they disobeyed him. The and, whole um, promise we'll, we'll of get to it in the later proof, but there's going to be one more separation, right? When uh, he calls us all to come out of Babylon, and and this is the the final separation, right? It, Absolutely exactly the same, and, and this is something we need to embrace that the, the holy seed, holy people, need to separate once and for all, right? Absolutely. And when they come out of Babylon, those who don't come out are going to be punished, along with those for whom he did not come. They're going to be punished along with the wicked. They may nevertheless have eternal life and resurrection, but they're going to suffer more greatly in this world if they do not come out of Babylon. But here we see in a prayer that the children of Israel could sin and be in need of forgiveness. They were still saints, according to the words of Solomon and according to the entire example of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 33. Now we shall see similar circumstances described in two of the Psalms of David. First, from the 16th Psalm. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto Yahweh, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extends not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth. And to the excellent, in whom is all my delight, their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names unto my lips. Meaning, David is professing that he won't commit idolatry. As the saints in the earth were committing idolatry. In David's time, the children of Israel were all going off into idolatry. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. There, even though the saints in the earth are called saints, David speaks of the multiplication of their sorrows on account of their idolatry. Then from the 30th Psalm. I will extol thee, O Yahweh, for thou hast lifted me up and hast not made my foes 
to rejoice over me. O Yahweh my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. O Yahweh, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit. Sing unto Yahweh, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. For his anger endures but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And in verse 4 of that passage, the word for saints is actually chassid, which is pious, but the word for holiness is from the same Hebrew word, kadesh, which is separateness or apartness. Even if Yahweh has cause to be angry with his saints, his pious ones will give thanks when he remembers his holiness because he favors them. Where David continues in the psalm, he offers himself as a model for repentance. But here it is clear that the saints are nonetheless saints even when they sin and even when they suffer his wrath for their sin. Anyone can be pious. But in the ancient world, if one has been sanctified on the altar of a god, then one has been accepted by a priest of that god and becomes the property of the god. Temple slaves were dedicated on altars and thereafter devoted to the services of a god. They may have been a burden on their parents and given up to a temple. Or they may have been men, women, or children who were taken in a war and devoted to a temple. A lot of times the victors in war would give a large portion of his booty to the gods that he thought had given him the ability to be to overcome their enemies and be victors in a war. So they would take a portion of the booty and devote it at the temple. They would dedicate it to the God at the temple as a gift in return for what they perceived to be a blessing. So in the ancient pagan world, whether they were male or female, they often became holy prostitutes, selling themselves for money for the temple, to make money for the temple. The temples, in other words, were the pimps of the ancient world, the pagan temples. Therefore, while the word Zana may be a harlot, it can mean harlot or adulterer, but it is related to a word that means to provide food or to be fed. Another word used to describe a harlot is a feminine form of Kadash, or I should say Kadash, it doesn't really matter, which refers to a temple prostitute, to one engaging in prostitution because they had been dedicated or sanctified at a temple for the use of the pagan god. And is actually in 
in the book of Genesis, I didn't pull up the citation or the chapter or verse, but in the book of Genesis, there's the account of Judah and Tamar. When Tamar had posed as a prostitute to deceive Judah into fulfilling his familial obligation to her of giving her his seed. And Tamar poses as a prostitute and seduces Judah. And that word harlot in that, in that section of scripture is actually translated from each of these words, from Zana, but also because she was perceived to have been a temple prostitute from this word Kadesh. So it's, it's a variation of the word. It's Kadeshah, a feminine form of Kadesh, which refers to a temple prostitute. Because they had been sanctified or dedicated at a temple for the use of the pagan god. The ancient Greeks set something apart or dedicated something to a god by placing it upon an altar in the temple of that god. Once that was done, the object or even the person became the property of the god of the temple and fell under the authority of the priests. So, as it is described in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham placed Isaac on the altar at the command of Yahweh, Abraham was surrendering his authority over his son and dedicating him to Yahweh, whereby Isaac became the only man ever dedicated to God at the explicit will and at the explicit command of God. You can't sanctify yourself. A man in the ancient world cannot truly sanctify himself and make himself devoted to God. He has to already be sanctified to a God. A, an Israelite could only sanctify himself in a sense of purifying himself ritually in the temple if he was already an Israelite sanctified to God. Christ is the priest who sanctified the children of Israel, who cleansed them. But he could only cleanse those who Yahweh had already sanctified in the sense of designated them as his people and separating them from all other people. So there's different levels of such sanctification. An Israelite couldn't take a pig and bring it to the temple and cleanse it ritually because Yahweh didn't consider it clean in the first place. Yeah, and um, in another way, um, somebody can't just choose uh, to be the son of someone just because they think, oh, he, he's um, rich and wealthy. If I become his son, I'll get a good inheritance, right? It doesn't work that way. You can't just choose to become uh, an inheritor of Yahweh. He has to choose you himself, right? Absolutely. Yahweh had to choose you to be one of the chosen. You can't make yourself one of the chosen, even by something you say out of your mouth. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. It's not a club you could join. The creation of God isn't a club that you could join if you're not a part of what he established. Much later, Paul explains in Romans chapter 9 
that the seed of the promise is that seed which was born of the promises made to Abraham, Sarah, and Rebekah, who gave birth to both Jacob and Esau. So because Abraham had other sons, he wrote that neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, meaning the children of the other sons, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed, the children of Isaac, of whom it is said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Then Paul went on further to further explain that of the sons of Isaac, Yahweh God hated Esau and loved Jacob, and that the Israelites are the vessels of mercy, while the Edomites are vessels of destruction. Nobody else can make themselves of the seed of Isaac. You can't do it. You can't choose to be of the seed of Isaac. But the children, the the church tries to say that Christ is the seed. But Paul is not saying that. It's the children of the promise who are counted for the seed. And he said that referring to Isaac, in Isaac shall thy seed be called, and he defines those seed as children, plural. You can't interpret Galatians chapter 3, which is also Paul's writing, and it was written within a couple of years at the time that the epistle to the Romans was written. Galatians was written two years sooner. You can't interpret that without also considering Romans chapter 9 because Paul's not contradicting himself. So all of the children of Israel were dedicated to God in the loins of Isaac. And when they separate themselves from the world and turn to Christ, they are accepting that fact. They're not becoming seed. They are seed accepting the scriptures. That is the call of the gospel. As we had discussed here recently, that is what it also means to be holy, sanctified, or a saint in the New Testament. This we can also read in the promise of a new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 37. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people And the heathen, or properly nations, shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel. When my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. And once again, that word for sanctify is the same Hebrew word, Kadesh, Strong's number 6918. Bill, um, just just as a slight digression, um, it's interesting that only Paul mentions um, Edomites, right? Do you think that the other apostles didn't quite have the same knowledge as Paul, whereas he quite clearly understood the history of, he must have understood the history of the Edomians, um, you know, mixing in with, with the Israelites in that land? Right, the people of Galilee, most of the other apostles were from Galilee. The apostles from Galilee were very simple fishermen. They were not raised up 
in schools. They went to the synagogue once a week, every Sabbath day, and heard readings of the scriptures. But they wouldn't have had, and they weren't necessarily given, background historical knowledge in order to understand those scriptures in relation to the events in history of their own times. Paul of Tarsus was different because first, he was Paul of Tarsus. His family had lived in Tarsus for multiple generations, even though they were Pharisees. Paul's home was Tarsus. It was still Tarsus, as we see, as late as when he got into trouble in Jerusalem preaching Christianity towards the end of Acts chapter 9, and the apostles sent him to Tarsus. They basically sent him home, where Paul must have still had family. And later on, some time later, in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Paul, and he brought him to Antioch. So, Paul still had his roots in Tarsus. And, as he says, his family must have been of some wealth because they could afford to send him to Jerusalem to be educated. So he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a very wise man. Even though he was a Pharisee, he was a very wise man, and his wisdom is exhibited in Acts chapter 5, to learn the law. That's where he learned the scriptures from a pharisaical point of view, which we know is wrong. We know from the words of Christ it's wrong. Well, Paul was a very educated man because he also had a classical education. And the fact that he had a classical education actually does come out in a lot of his statements in his epistles that people who are not studied in the classics would never understand. And I could demonstrate, and I have demonstrated in my commentaries on Paul, that in addition to the typical list of citations, which are mentioned in the location of citations and allegations, which is a an appendix to the Novum Testamentum Grece, the 27th edition of the NA27 or the Nestle A-Land edition of the New Testament scriptures, Paul, they say, and, and they are correct, that Paul had cited the Greek classical or Hellenistic writers, some of them are classical and some of them are Hellenistic, Aratus, Epimenides, Euripides, Menander, and Heraclitus. But I have also found in my own reading where Paul cited Livy, Xenophon, and Cicero. Or at least he paraphrased things that Cicero had also paraphrased. So Paul was a very learned man, and a lot of the statements and language that he uses in his epistles demonstrates that. Paul had a very 
good education in history, which the simple fishermen from Galilee did not have. And Christ chose them for a particular reason, and Paul explains why. Because Christianity should refute the wisdom of the world. But Paul, having his knowledge of both scripture and history, was able to bring the scripture to the people whose history it was, the lost sheep of the house of Israel who were scattered in Europe. That's why Paul in particular was chosen for that task because Paul in particular was qualified for that task. All he had to do was see the scriptures in a light other than the errors of the Pharisees and he did and it was showed to him. And he had the same history available to him that we see in the pages of Flavius Josephus. How 200 years before the Israelites in Judea had begun to force the Edomites to become circumcised and to become quote-unquote Judeans like them. And the simple fishermen would not have known that any more than the average American today can recite or explain the true causes for the War of 1812 or for the War, the so-called American Civil War, they'll say it's over slavery. But it wasn't over slavery. They can't cite the true causes of those wars. They don't really know the history. They may have known things that they heard or the little dates and, and silly little facts that you learn in what passes for history in school, in grade school or in high school. But Real history is not taught. Real history has to be studied and pursued. You might learn about dates. You might know some of the pivotal points in British history and approximately when they happened. But you don't know all of the details behind that history. And what led to certain things having happened. So, no, the fishermen in Galilee did not thoroughly understand the history of Judea. They didn't understand who the Edomites were. They knew Herod was wicked. They didn't necessarily understand why. Paul explains it. And we also find it in the pages of Josephus because only the most learned of men at that time would have been able to access that material and, and study it. Education is not for everybody. We pretend today that it's for everybody. Most people graduate high school after 12 years, and they're basically simply trained idiots. They haven't learned anything that they weren't told. And what they're told is not sufficient to thoroughly understand any particular subject. Okay. That's my rant for today. The popes cannot designate a saint. Only Yahweh has already designated the saints. In Matthew chapter 27, 
of the very moment of the passion of the Christ, the moment he dies on the cross, we read in part, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Those were Old Testament saints who had never heard of Jesus before they died. Yet, they were nevertheless saints. There was no Pope around at that time. There was no Pope. And Christ was dead. But there were saints. So 25 years later, Paul of Tarsus had addressed his epistle to the Romans, saying, To all that be in Rome, Beloved of God, and the King James Version has called to be saints, but those words to be are in italics. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He addressed his first epistle to the Corinthians likewise. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're already sanctified called to be saints. With all that in every place, call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Both their places and ours. In the King James Version, in both of those verses, we see the words to be are added in italics. And that means they are not in the original text. They are not in the Greek of either passage. The translators made a lie when they added those words because Paul never used saint in such a context that someone could somehow become a saint. In fact, the word for called is not a verb. It is kletois, which is an adjective of the plural dative form modifying the plural dative noun hagios as Paul was writing to called saints or to saints who were already called. So he was telling them that they are saints and since he wrote that he wrote the epistle to the Romans before he ever went to Rome. Many of the saints among the Romans, he had not even met when he wrote that epistle. And the same phrase, Kletois Hagios, was used by him in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. Kletois Hagios is called saints. Or chosen saints. That's what it means. If you have a red ball. It's a ball which is red. And the word red is an adjective that describes the ball. You can't slip a verb in between there. A ball to be red. Or red to be a ball. That's ridiculous. But that's what the King James translators did in those passages. They slipped a verb in between red and ball. In other words, so that they could make you think that it's not really a red ball, 
but it's a ball which might be red or might become red at any given time. So let's just sit around to see if the ball really turns red. That's what they're doing. It's it's childish. It's a childish example, but it's fully descriptive of what they did when they slipped a non-existent verb in between the words kletois and hagios when they made their translation. So we read also in the second epistle to the Corinthians, where Paul addressed it, under the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia. And his attended readers were already saints. But once again, in that context, the King James translators could not add words to be. However, where they did add the words, the impression is given that a Christian may hope to become a saint, was being called to be a saint. Contrary to the truth, that every Christian, in keeping with the commandments of Christ, is already a saint if he is previously, if he is of the previously sanctified children of Israel. If you're not of the previously sanctified children of Israel, you could never be a saint. Yeah, as we said before, it's robbing us of um, that that heritage, right, and bestowing uh, the power on on the church who can, uh, you know, distribute sainthood and choose and pick and banish or, you know, essentially when they really should be teaching that we're all the saints, the children of Israel, right? Absolutely. We're all the children of Israel. That's what they should teach. If, in fact, we're related to these people to whom the apostles had brought the gospel of Christ. If we're not related to them, then we are certainly not children of Israel. So who did they bring the gospel of Christ to? They brought it to Romans. They brought it to certain Greeks. They didn't bring it to all Greeks. When when Paul of Tarsus spoke in Athens... Those people aren't Israelites. For the most part, they're Japhethites. They are Ionian. They're Ionians, descended from Japheth. They're not Israelites descended from Jacob, Abraham, and Eber, and the line of Shem. So they're distant cousins to the Israelites. But they're not Israelites. So when Paul spoke at Athens, he didn't mention Christ. He didn't mention sin. He didn't mention repentance. He didn't mention the law. He didn't mention Moses. He didn't call them saints because all of those things are only for the children of Israel. Paul's epistle to the Philippians is addressed in part to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And while the true meanings of the words bishop and deacon are outside of the scope of our purpose here, we see that those who have positions of authority in the assembly are among the other saints, people whom Paul had already considered saints as they were living, which is another thing to note here. The Roman Catholic Church won't call anybody a saint until long after they're dead. Paul was calling all of these ordinary, everyday Christians, saints, as they were living. In that context also, the King James translators could not add the words to be. 
Then he ended that same epistle by saying, in part, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. At the time, Paul was a prisoner in Rome. He had already seen at least one trial there, which he mentions in the epistle, and he had evidently won converts to Christianity, even in the household of Caesar, whom he referred to as saints, where he said, salute every saint. He was asking his readers to greet all the Christians in Philippi on his behalf. These are all average, everyday Christians, whom Paul considered to be saints, and not the artificial saints, which may have been designated as such by the popes of the Roman Catholic Church. They cannot make saints, as Yahweh has already declared who are his saints, his sanctified ones. The true saints are the children of Israel, and it is they alone, who are called to sanctify themselves in Christ and separate themselves from the sins of the world. Actually, that should be sanctify themselves in Christ by separating themselves from the sins of the world as he has already sanctified them. The designation never changed from the time of the Old Testament. Otherwise, the dead who rose at Christ's resurrection wouldn't have been called saints. So we read in the opening verses of the Song of Moses. And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, Yahweh came from Sinai and rose up from Seir under them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. And he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yeah, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand. And they sat down at thy feet. Every one shall receive of thy words. Moses commanded us a law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. Then, as we discussed here recently, in Revelation chapter 15, we read, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So they're one song. They are not two different songs. Saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. True and just are thy ways, thou King of saints. We cannot imagine that the saints of Deuteronomy are people other than the saints of the Revelation, as it is the same song which they sing. The saints are the children of Israel, and they were destined by the will of God to suffer trials in this world. As we read in Daniel chapter 7, after the passing of the four beast empires, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, whose teeth were of iron 
and his nails of brass, which devoured, broken pieces and stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of which the other came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spoke very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. This isn't describing something going on in the stars. Which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are the ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them. Now we've already exhibited what these things are at length in earlier presentations in these proofs, so I'm not going to take the time to do all of that today. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And that, of course, relates to the Emperor Justinian, who established the power of the papacy. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So the Pope is going to be hostile to the true saints. And think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of a time. So the Pope was prophesied to persecute the saints, not to make saints. That's ridiculous. That interpretation is absurd. If the saints are the Most High, to which Daniel had referred, only, I should say, with which a label with which Daniel referred only to the children of Israel. If they would ultimately possess the kingdom forever, then the kingdom of heaven is indeed going to be inherited by those same saints and their identity has never changed. So Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, from the King James Version. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. According as he has chosen us in him, Paul addressing saints, before the foundation of the world, the foundation of the society, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us. You can't separate the concept of saint from the concept of being chosen before the foundation of the society or the concept of being predestinated unto the adoption. 
the same adoption which Paul had said in Romans chapter 9 was for Israelites and only for Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh. The position of sons is what it really means. Having predestinated us unto the position of sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Meaning that in Christ all of the children of Israel would once again be acceptable to God. In that passage, Hagios is saints in verse 1, and Hagios is holy in verse 4. Furthermore, Christians, having been predestined to be holy, only the children of Israel received that predestination in the Old Testament, and the new covenant was made with them alone. The covenant in which they would be sanctified, as we read in Ezekiel chapter 37, and as it is promised in Jeremiah chapter 31. Every white Christian Israelite is a saint, and nobody else can possibly be a saint in relation to Yahweh. When Yahweh sanctifies Israel, once again, as you yourself have said, He shall be separating Israel from all other nations, and they shall know it, as we read in Ezekiel chapter 37. And today, um, the Catholic Church and other churches are doing the opposite, right? They're trying to uh, bring other beasts and bastards into um, the congregation of the holy people, the church. So that, that, and that's why they're called a beast, right? They're doing the exact opposite of um, the, the purpose of Israel, right? Well, well, right, and it's coming. It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming, and the church has just laid some of the groundwork for it. Roman Catholic sainthood is heresy, and it's absolutely contrary to everything which we have just presented from Scripture. According to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, we read, All Christians are called to be saints. Now, that's a lie. They're adding that same phrase in there that we saw added in the King James Version. Saints are persons in heaven, officially canonized or not, who lived heroically virtuous lives, offered their lives for others, or were martyred for the faith and who are worthy of imitation. They did not state that all Christians are saints, as Paul of Tarsus wrote, to all of the assemblies in his epistles. Paul was saying that all Christians are saints. People he didn't even meet. People in Rome he hadn't even seen yet. He called them saints simply because he knew first that they were Romans and second that they accepted Christ. They were ordinary, everyday Christians. Paul's calling them saints. But the church changed the whole definition into something mystical that only the church can designate. And they create a huge lie and give the church a power which it doesn't ever have. Paul didn't 
make saints. Paul didn't declare anybody to be a saint apart from anybody else. He called them all saints. So here we see that the church follows the same thinking reflected in those added words of the King James Version, claiming that Christians are merely called to be saints, or the red ball is called to be red. That perpetuates the lie, so that the church can claim to have the authority. But that authority was never granted to the apostles by Christ, and the apostles never claimed to have any such authority. So the popes pretend to make saints based on certain criteria. Where the bishops continue at this United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, we read, quote, In official church procedures, there are three steps to sainthood. A candidate becomes venerable, then blessed, and then saint. Venerable is the title given to a deceased person, formerly recognized by the Pope as having lived a heroically virtuous life or offered their life to be beatified and then and recognized as blessed. One miracle acquired through the candidate's intercession is required in addition to recognition of heroic virtue or offering of life. Now, none of the Christians whom Paul had called saints were ever recorded as having performed any miracle. Then they go on and they say, canonization, the final step, requires a second miracle after beatification. The Pope may waive these requirements. A miracle is not required prior to a martyr's beatification, but one is required before canonization. Now, that being said, with political pressure on the church from certain Catholic groups in the United States to create some Negro saints, this is a rather recent manifestation, Catholics want nigger saints. We read in a recent article published by the Catholic News Service that Pope Francis announces a new path to sainthood. In the article, which features a photograph of Pope Francis embracing a Negro woman, or a Negro female, I should say, we read, and there's a link to that article here, and if you scroll partway down, you'll see Pope Francis hugging a she-boon. For centuries, consideration for the sainthood process required that a servant of God heroically lived a life of Christian virtues or had been martyred for the faith. The third, less common way is called an equivalent or equipollent canonization. When there is evidence of strong devotion among the faithful to a holy man or woman, the Pope can waive a lengthy formal canonical investigation and can authorize their veneration as saints. 
while these three roads to sainthood remained unchanged. They were not adequate for interpreting all possible cases of holiness. The Archbishop wrote in the Vatican newspaper, Le Esservatore Romano, July 11th. So, there is also a bait and switch going on here. Three steps described by the United States Conference of Bishops has become three roads or separate paths under Pope Francis in this article. So, reading on further, as if the Pope could possibly write a truly apostolic letter, we read, According to the apostolic letter, any causes for beatification according to the new pathway of offering of life would have to meet the following criteria. First, free and willing offer of one's life and a heroic acceptance out of love of a certain and early death, the heroic act of charity and the premature death are connected. Second, evidence of having lived out the Christian virtues, at least in an ordinary and not necessarily heroic way, before having offered one's life to others and until one's death. And then, evidence of reputation for holiness, at least after death. And then, finally, we read, and this is more an afternote than a path, because the three paths have already been explained. A miracle attributed to the candidate's intercession is needed for beatification. Of course, Roman Catholics were never in want of a miracle when they sought to conjure one. We should expect the church to announce a Negro saint any day now. As recently as December 15th of this year, we read in an article at the Religion News Service that it is embarrassing to many of us that in the church where we worship, there are no United States African American saints recognized by the highest church authorities. But the truth is that only the white children of Israel could ever be saints. And all of them are saints. No nigger could ever be a saint. I don't know if you have anything to respond to any of that. Well, I'm surprised that they haven't claimed uh, that some of these saints were actually black, right? <laughs> like, that they're always trying to rewrite history and give uh, the Negro some kind of history, right? That isn't just um, eating each other in, in Africa. But so, so, so yeah, and um, you, you know, the Jews are always trying to create these uh, great pious uh, niggers to, to deceive us, right? Like um, Gandhi and and Martin Luther, and just recently, I think some. I can't remember the archbishop of some English bishop that, that they gave it to a nigger and then he died and they dig him up and, and write some great history how he was a great pious person but he was a 
against that um, South African apartheid. So they're always creating these um, pawns, basically, that they can use that, to deceive us, right? And it's no surprise that they're putting pressure on the Catholic Church to do the same, right, in all to uh, encourage the race mix in agenda, right? Absolutely. And Martin Luther King Jr., that nigger, he wasn't a saint. He was a whoremonger. He was a communist and a whoremonger. But he had a certain personality, which international Jewry, which wanted to push this civil rights agenda, and, and this is, goes right back to the Frankfurt School, and, and the tactics that they outlined in, in their writings, how they were going to undermine Western society, and they propped him up and they financed him <laughs> so that he was something other than what he actually was, so that he could appear to be a saint. Their media kept all the reports of him out of the, all the reports of him as a whoremonger and, and all of his other sins out of the newspapers because they control the media collectively and pictured him as a saint. So that people today think, white people today think he was a great man and a saint who fought for a noble and just cause. He, he was really sleeping with white prostitutes and the government knew it and never published it. So we, we have what? We have an idol, a false god, a false image which the devil has constructed for us. And people are taken up after it. And they believe it. And they base life decisions upon those perceptions. So they yeah. really are worshipping the beast. And as for the whole saint thing, that, that thing just makes no sense whatsoever, right? Or, you know, uh, and, and the whole, you know, it combines with who's saved, like... Uh, what if you've never even heard the gospel or you never even had an opportunity or you was born be before Christ, right? It, it just logically doesn't make sense. And um, what, you know, Christian identity explains it perfectly that God created the white race and they all have a, an afterlife and he chose one uh, one race or one family to be his chosen one, the, the holy seed which are the children of Israel, right? And, and we're all saved. And that was the purpose of Christ. It's very simple once you understand it, right? Well, absolutely. But the Roman Catholic Church takes that one step further and assigns a particular realm or facet or aspect of life to each saint so that this saint is the patron saint of nurses and this saint is the patron saint of sailors and this saint is the patron saint now they even have and I forget the name but I saw this recently I, I may have dug it up for this presentation I actually thought about it and it kind of slipped away from me yesterday. Patron saint of race-mixed people. That They had this Martin de Porres. And, and this is incredible, because this is an, in, this is blasphemy to Holy Spirit. This is overt and blatant blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Martin de Porres Velasquez, born December 1579, died November 1639, was a Peruvian lay brother of the Dominican order. 
who was beatified in 1837 by Pope Gregory XVI and canonized in 1962 by Pope John XXIII, those original three steps to sainthood. He is the patron saint of mixed-race people, barbers, innkeepers, public health workers, and all those seeking racial harmony. Clifton Emmerheiser was a barber. I don't think he'd claim this South American squat monster is a saint. <laughs> Does that mean soon we'll have the uh, patron saint of uh, sodomy or, or transgender or bestiality Absolutely. or whatever, right? Absolutely. It's coming. This Martin de Porres is basically the patron saint of bastards. And the law of God says that a bastard shall never enter the congregation of God. And Paul of Tarsus says in Hebrews chapter 13 that you're either a son or a bastard. So if you're a bastard, you can't be a son. However, the Catholic Church has also redefined the meaning of the term bastard to suit themselves. Their entire theology is a house of cards that relies on lies, added words that aren't in the text, mistranslations, and other misconceptions or or perversions of Scripture. Okay, to end this on a positive note, from Hebrews chapter 2, from verse 11, from the King James Version, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, and Paul defined brethren in Romans chapter 9 as kinsmen according to the flesh, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church or assembly will I sing praise unto thee. And he's quoting from Psalms. He's quoting from David. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. And there he's quoting from Isaiah the prophet. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Speaking of the bondage of the penalties of the law, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, Christ a direct descendant of Abraham through Jacob Israel and through Judah, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So first, if if it were not important to be an Israelite, why would it be important that Christ took upon himself the seed of Abraham so that he could be one of the brethren? If he came as a Chinaman, 
he would not have been one of the brethren. If he came as a Chinaman or as a Negro, he could never have been of the seed of Abraham. The statement serves to prove that it certainly is important. And for that reason, he took part in the same flesh and blood since only they are his brethren. The word for sanctifieth in that passage is hagiazo, the verb form of hagias. The word translated as saint, which we had discussed earlier. So we learn that it is Christ who sanctifies, who makes saints. And here Paul informs us that he sanctifies the seed of Abraham, who are the children of Israel, just as it is promised in the law and the prophets. This is just as Yahweh had promised in Ezekiel chapter 37, which we have already cited, and the nation shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. And this will actually bring us to discuss the many New Testament appeals to the law and the prophets, which is the substance of our next proof. But that won't be this week. I don't know if you have anything to say. Yeah, that um, essentially they've used this deception to um, hide what what holy really means, right? What we've been essentially saying this uh, whole time that they it's, it's very similar to um, how they obfuscate uh, the trials of fire and um, y- you know the lake of fire, and they make that hell where they can, uh, in a similar way, make this misconception that some people go to hell and some people to heaven. And once you clear it all up, it, you get the real meaning, and and it's perfectly logical that we have the trials of life. And um, that then we are judged, and then non-white bastards—they essentially go to lake fire. And here, in the, in a very similar way, where it's just black and white, you're either a saint or you're a bastard, right? Son or bastard. Um, at, at least now, because only the Israelites are left, right? There are other Adamites who are, who are sons, but they're not, you know, the, the chosen ones. And it and it all gives a very simple explanation. Once you can picture it all, it's very logical, and it all makes sense, right? Absolutely, it's extremely logical. A saint is someone who has been sanctified by God because first, one needs a priest of a God in order to sanctify or dedicate something at an altar. And the Levitical priest fulfilled that role in the Old Testament, but Christ fulfills that role in the New Testament. And Paul speaks of the offering of Christ being the children of Israel being offered to God, but he died in their place so that they could live. There's lots of different levels of abstraction going on, but in order to understand what's really happening in Scripture, you have to go back and and take every stone and define it properly so that you could set it in its proper place in the building. Otherwise, you're just building something that's going to crumble. This Roman Catholic theology that anybody can choose to be holy, you can't choose to be dedicated to a God, to to Yahweh God at his temple. You can't make that choice for yourself. He has to make it. 
You can make that choice in a pagan temple. You could go to a pagan temple and throw yourself at the mercy of the priest, and he'll be glad to take you and use you as a prostitute so that the temple could make money or as a slave in other ways if you're not pretty enough to be a prostitute. Then he'll have you out hoeing the fields or, or doing something else for the temple so that it could profit from you. So you're going to be a slave to the temple. This isn't the way Yahweh, the Yahweh, who is the true God, works. He chose a particular people. They are sanctified. They are saints. He chose them before the foundation of the world. If you can't show that you are one of those people who were chosen before Christ, then you can't possibly be one of the people of Christ. And we know who those people are because we know to whom it was that the apostles had brought this message. And we know to whom it was that the prophets were prophesying in relation to. And that's how we identify ourselves. The Israelites were white. They are the saints. They don't have to be made saints by some pope to be saints. Yahweh God and Yahshua Christ and his apostles have already declared them to be saints. Whether they're good or bad, they're saints. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me as always, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Praise Yahweh and good night.